the book of Ezekiel, it's, the name of it is taken from its author. It was likely written, this book was likely written at a period of time between 593 B.C. and 565 B.C., while Ezekiel was a foreigner living in Babylon, a Jewish priest living in Babylon. The book of Ezekiel, it can be broken down into three prominent messages from God. Three prominent messages from God. The first, warning and judgment for Judah and Jerusalem. Not exactly the message that you're hoping to hear, (laughs) but warning and judgment for Judah and Jerusalem. Now remember that Judah uh, survived about 135 years longer than the ten kingdoms, the, the, the ten tribes of the north, which would be the northern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and, uh, and eventually uh, they had been dispersed to the place that you really couldn't even find, and why you'll still hear people refer to today as the ten lost tribes of Israel, because they were so dispersed uh, that people did not even know who was from those tribes. But Judah and Benjamin, uh, which was part there of Judah, uh, survived much, much longer. And this first theme, or this first message, I should say, this first message from God is now for Judah and Jerusalem that they too are going to be destroyed, and God warns them. The second is, the second message from God in this book is warning and judgment to the nations. Uh, God is not only going to deal justly with the apple of his eye, his own people, Judah, but he also will deal with the nations that are just as wicked. And there were many of them. And so we'll see that as we go through the book as well. And then lastly, the third message there's other messages, but I'm giving you the macro, these are the macro messages. There's other messages from God uh, in this lengthy book, but the, the macro messages, judgment and, ju- uh, judgment and warning for Judah and Jerusalem, warning and judgment to the nations, and then the third, prophecies of hope and restoration for Israel. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Prophecies of restoration and hope. You know, the scriptures say when the Lord tears, he also heals and repairs. God does not do these things without the mindset uh, that he wants to bring about true repentance. He wants to bring about restoration just as he wants to do in our personal lives, certainly wants to do among the nations. Healing for the nations we see in the book of Revelation at the very end. There's the leaves, they even are called the healing of the nations. Now, there's also some unmistakable themes. Those are, the, those are the three prominent messages from God in this book, but there's also some very, very prominent themes, and they deal with the Lord. God's glory. We see it in chapter 1. We'll see it in other places as well. Seven different visions that Ezekiel will have, but God's glory, God's holiness... God's power and sovereignty, and finally, His grace and mercy. 
if you have just those other attributes of God without grace and mercy, you can have a problem. Um, his glory, His holiness, His power, His sovereignty, and finally His grace and mercy. These are unmistakable themes of the Lord that we also see in this book. This is not an exhaustive list, uh, but it gives you an idea of the things that we'll be touching on as we go through. Now, Ezekiel, not only is it a big book, but uh, like many books that deal with prophecy, like many books that uh, the prophets, God used the prophets, they do some sometimes odd things compared to what you're used to seeing, and the, and the prophecies themselves can be rather complex as well. Uh, William Greenhill, he was an English minister in the 1600s. This is what he said about the book of Ezekiel. He said, it is full of majesty, obscurity, and difficulty. I'm glad to be tackling uh, this. Now, I've come to realize that the whole Bible, once you realize that the whole Word of God comes literally from the Lord, uh, you treat it with all of it with a holy reverence, but less intimidation of any one section because it's all from God. And so you just take it slowly but surely, little bit by little bit, and I think that the Lord will give us a lot of insight and understanding. But it is, it is full of majesty. There are obscurities that we still... There are quest, When it comes to prophecy, there are things that no one knows the answer to. So those things remain obscure until God reveals them. And it certainly has some difficulty... Some of the messages may be difficult to swallow, but yet they must be uh, heard and understood. As I mentioned again, this uh, plays a great role uh, today in Israel's future. Certainly we'll look at much of Israel's past, but as believers, and those of us in in the body of Christ, there's a lot for us to understand as well. So I'm really looking forward to what uh, the Lord will do as we go through this study. If you're taking notes, um, I've titled our time tonight in God's Word, The Heavens Opened. The Heavens Opened. And we'll just look at two things, uh, two sections, if you will, tonight. An oppression and an overwhelming. An oppression and an overwhelming. If we look at this oppression... Why do I use that to kind of sum up our, the first thing we want to look at tonight? We read in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chabar. This is not something that any of us really want to be. Write in a letter from somewhere where you are a captive, and I was among the captives. Um, That statement right there, when it starts, is not a super happy tone, is it? And we were having a rip-roaring time in Babylon that doesn't say that. Came to pass in the 30th year on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chabar, among the other Israelites that were there with Ezekiel. Ezekiel himself, I gave you a little bit bit of background on the book of Ezekiel, but Ezekiel himself, he was a contemporary, I don't know if you knew this, but he was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Daniel. 
may be new information or maybe you knew that already, but he was a contemporary. Just like some of you are older than some of you, we're still all contemporaries because we're all here at the same time, and they, they lived at the same time. Jeremiah was about 20 years older than Ezekiel and Daniel, but 20 years older, a little bit more ahead of those two men. But Ezekiel and Daniel, they were of such similar age, very, very close in age, and there's evidence, and several, uh, quite a few scholars believe they were the same age, Ezekiel and Daniel, same age. Jeremiah was, as you probably know, he had other names, but he was known as the weeping prophet because he wept for what was going to happen to Judah. Uh, he was prophesying about the destruction of Judah well before Daniel and Ezekiel were. Judah, uh, Jeremiah was the first of the three of them, the three of them being contemporaries. Jeremiah was the one that, that was the, the first to cry out, judgment is coming. And he was, when he did that, it wasn't really well received at all. Well, that would be an understatement. But he was the first, and he was warning of Judah's destruction before the first siege of ba uh, uh, the first siege from Babylon against Jerusalem in 605 B.C. I'm going to show you a, uh, a timeline in just a few minutes that'll hopefully help uh, clear some things up. Jeremiah, though, he served alongside King Josiah. Some of you might uh, have read of King Josiah when you read in uh, Kings and Chronicles and. Uh, but he served alongside King Josiah until Josiah's death in 609 B.C. And under the reign of Josiah, Israel did see, and this is, this is good for us in America to keep praying for, because under the rule of uh, Josiah, Israel did see a revival. It wasn't a super long-lasting revival, but it was a legitimate revival kind of like um, the one that I showed that Jeremiah Lamphere uh, way back in the 1800s there uh, that he prayed for, and America did see revival. It only lasted about four or five years, but thousands came to Christ. I, something similar to that, uh, under the rule of uh, Josiah. Josiah, uh, his father and grandfather were wicked men, uh, but he was used of the Lord to bring about revival and Jeremiah served right alongside Josiah. They were contemporaries uh, as well. But with that revival, even though the majority of Israel did not truly go all in, you know what that means, right? The majority of Israel did not truly go all in and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I mean, not just on the exterior, but deep down at the heart level. But the few did, and the ones that did among them, among that small minority that had a life-changing experience with the revival of under Josiah, was no doubt Daniel and Ezekiel would have been in that group, and others as well. But these men truly separated themselves unto the Lord. And everything we see about Daniel or Ezekiel there's no mention of a time where they weren't living that way. So uh, from the time they were young men, probably late teen years, they had 
fully surrendered themselves to the Lord and said, no matter if Judah stays in the revival or goes back to idolatry, we will stay with the Lord. And of course, we know that Ezekiel and Daniel both did. Certainly Jeremiah did as well. But no doubt as well that the Lord was preparing both of these men, Daniel and Ezekiel, that they would both serve the Lord in a foreign land, in the land of what would be the greatest empire in their lifetime, the Babylonian Empire, one of the greatest empires of all time in world history. And they would play a key role uh, in the scriptures, in prophecy, in proclaiming truth, and keeping their own people's eyes fixed on the Lord, and they would do it from Babylon. Both Daniel and Ezekiel will end up there. So here he is among the exiles, Ezekiel, not particularly, probably feeling great about God's plan, but accepting it. Uh, he had not wavered from the Lord. It says here that uh, while he was among the captives, tells us in verse 3 that the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Uh, you and I may not always understand what God is doing, and we might be bewildered at times. We told about, you know, I talked about the Apostle Paul, crushed but, uh, or, or perplexed but not, uh, not crushed, uh, somewhat, um, again, scratching the head and going through those difficult times. We talked about this on Sunday, uh, even with the temptations and trials of Jesus, that there's those wilderness periods in your life and you don't have answers for all the things that may be happening. And Ezekiel certainly didn't either. He, you know, he probably maybe thought, you know, we gave our lives to the Lord. There in the revival of Josiah, we, we didn't waver. We completely gave our lives to the Lord and now we've been carried off and we're in Babylon. Of all places, Babylon. Land of hundreds of, God, hundreds of pagan gods. And all the wickedness that's there. And uh, talk about being uh, a pilgrim or a stranger. They not only literally, uh, figuratively were, but literally were strangers in a foreign land. And even if you were to go all over Babylon and see all the different false gods, and uh, they had a, uh, many uh, false gods in the Babylonian culture, uh, gods such as Anshar, Anu, Ea, Ishtar, who was a goddess of love and war. And they had all these different foreign uh, deities and gods and goddesses and, and the idolatry that was there. But uh, the Babylonian people, you could go all over the ancient kingdom there, but you weren't going to find anything about the God of Israel. That was completely absent. Uh, as we live in the United States, <laughs> uh, we see in our own country God becoming increasingly absent in the minds of many and more people choosing atheism or agnosticism or uh, other religions or Near East religions and all these other things. And so uh, we can kind of see how that happens in a society. It certainly was happening in Israel and one of the reasons why, uh, the primary reason actually why Israel was going to be judged, but they left uh, the frying pan, you know, left the frying pan for the fire, uh, for Ezekiel that is, to go from Israel, which was also becoming and was very idolatrous, to go to a land of complete, 100% idolatry. There was no temple 
all idolatry. There was no temple to go to, uh, which is significant for Ezekiel because he's a priest. You see that in the text, right? It tells us that he, Ezekiel, verse, in verse 3, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of Chaldeans. So he was of the priesthood, but he's a long way from the temple. And they're here by the river Chabar. Um, this is a canal that would have come off the Euphrates River. So the Babylonians would uh, have that diversion of the water into a canal. And here the group of uh, Israelites, all of them probably, again, keeping at least the sense of community. And we see this really with, uh, with Jewish communities all over the world, even to this day. Uh, they're not in exile if they're in Buenos Aires, or not in exile if they're in Berlin or London or Toronto or New York City, but nevertheless, uh, the sense of community that we still see in Jewish communities all around the world, um, this was certainly taking place here. But it wasn't just a sense of community. This gathering really had, this is kind of cool though, Ezekiel really is a priest. And it appears that he's actually really involved in speaking regularly to the people, reminding them of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it appears that they're gathering uh, Ezekiel being a man of God, and the fact that he was, the word of the Lord expressly came to him, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Uh, it certainly appears that uh, not only they're gathering was him speaking, but perhaps even praying to God. When will you take us back to Israel? When will you release us from this place? When will we get to go back? Now, they were not suffering in the sense that, uh, you know, Ezekiel will end up, uh, we'll see in the, in, in the book, he actually has a house. Uh, they were given uh, favorable treatment to live in Babylon. They were not imprisoned. Uh, they were able to live like the people of Babylon, but again, that's not where their heart was. Uh, they didn't want to be in Babylon. They didn't want to be living in a pagan culture, and especially if you're Ezekiel, being a priest, his job was to be in the temple, and he's nowhere near the temple in Jerusalem. He's hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Babylon. But it appears that they would... Uh, gather there, and we don't know how many were gathered. Uh, this could have been even a remnant of the most faithful to the Lord that Ezekiel would gather, because we know that many of the ones that, many of the Jewish uh, exiles were not faithful to the Lord. Uh, Ezekiel certainly was, but about 10,000 other prominent uh, Jews had been carried away to Babylon in the year 597 with Ezekiel. Let's take a look at this one. I'll show you one um, one timeline that might be helpful just for you to understand. You can go ahead and hit full screen at the bottom there. Yep, right there. All right, so on the top there, these are the different kings of Judah. And right here is Josiah. He dies in 609 B.C. And we see that he, uh, Jehoiakim is mentioned by Ezekiel 
597 was when, right here, 597 was there's three sieges. Maybe you didn't know this, but there were three sieges of Jerusalem. Uh, the first one in 605 is when Daniel was carted off to Babylon. That was right here, 605. First siege, um, Nebuchadnezzar kind of roughed Jerusalem up. Uh, he took a smaller number of captives, a few thousand, but for the most part, uh, he just uh, gave them a good beating, but didn't destroy Jerusalem, and then they agreed to be a puppet vassal, and then uh, that all came apart at the seams at 597 when Jehoiakim, we don't know what he was drinking, but he decided to revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, which was a really bad decision. And so in the second siege, he comes and takes a larger number, Nebuchadnezzar that is, he takes much of the gold in the temple, a lot of the elements and in, in, uh, in different pieces of the temple ministry were taken at this time back to Babylon. The gold, the cups, different things. Not everything, they just took a lot. And uh, that's when Ezekiel was carried to Babylon in the second siege. So Daniel went in the first siege, even though they're almost the same age or maybe even the same age. Daniel went in the first siege. And then Ezekiel goes in the second siege at 597 B.C. And then we see what we're reading right here in Ezekiel 1. The heavens open and the Lord visits Ezekiel in 593 B.C. So Daniel, again, was already there. But Ezekiel, and by the way, when it says they met at the river Chabar, uh, very, very possible. We don't know where everyone was living in, in, the, in the area, but it's possible that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all of them would have been part of that. Again, we don't know exactly, but that certainly is possible. And, note, and we'll see that Ezekiel mentions Daniel's name in the book of Ezekiel. How many knew that? That Ezekiel mentions Daniel's name. Uh, they certainly knew each other. And Ezekiel has great respect for Daniel's walk with God, uh, similar to the way Peter has great respect for Paul's walk with God when he mentions that uh, in his epistle. But here at 593 B.C. is what we're seeing in chapter 1. And then finally, the third siege, which we'll get into later in the book, the third siege is when Jerusalem is leveled. The temple will be leveled, destroyed, many, many, many people killed, uh, and that will be the obliteration. Uh, it would be like seeing New York City in a complete smoldering, not just the Twin Towers, but the whole city. That's what will happen on the third siege. But here, in, uh, so you can take that down and we'll go back into the text here. But here in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, this is in 593 B.C. It's been, uh, it's been five years, five years for... Ezekiel, since he was taken away from Jerusalem. Can you imagine you grow up in the United States and you're in, it's in, we're invaded and you're carried away to another foreign land? I mean, it, we never, we just read it and like, just kind of read it, yeah, that happened. But try and put it in your, put your own 
but put, you know, put this in your shoes, that you would be carted away, captive, taken to another land, to another country, and it's been not five days, but five years now. Five years. Now, like I said, even though they were not living in prison, they were given, uh, at this point, the opportunity to live a normal life with Babylonians, but it was anything but normal for a group of people that grew up in the Hebrew culture, and all of those things were not there. Uh, sent to a completely foreign land, different language. I mean, the Babylonians are not Hebrew speakers. Everything's different. Uh, different every, uh, again, it would be difficult. It would be tough. You certainly could get those feelings that some of them probably had, that has God forgotten us? Why aren't we? Because the, many of their relatives and other um, others of the nation of Judah were living back there, right? Remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar just set it up as a, a puppet, kind of like uh, the way that Romania used to work for the former Soviet Union or something like that. And you know, there's kind of a pass-through power structure. But but the rest of the people were still living in Judah, and and uh, many believed, even of the exiles, that. God would take them back soon, that it would be any day now that they'd all get to go back, and that wasn't going to happen. There's going to be 70 years of captivity, 70 years, a lot more than five. And here they are gathered together. And on top of all this, Ezekiel is doing his best to serve the Lord, keep everyone else's spirits up that God has not forgotten us, keep teaching the Word of God. He's a priest. God's going to make him a prophet on top of the fact that he's a priest. As some believe, he already had a prophet ministry before that. Uh, we don't know, uh, but we do know he was a priest of the priesthood. But he's going to become not only a priest, but a prophet of the Lord. And he's doing a great job as best he can of keeping the people together, bringing them together and uh, making sure that they continue to look to the Lord and hear the word. But here on this particular day, it says in uh, verse 2, I'm sorry, it says in verse 1, the 30th year, and we find out that this is Ezekiel's 30th birthday. God comes to him. It's been five years. Is the Lord going to work on our behalf? Has he forgotten about us? They've not turned to sin. They've not wavered. They've had their good days. They've had their bad days, right? But they've stayed true to the Lord. And God comes to Ezekiel on his 30th birthday. We can actually pinpoint the day on our Gregorian calendar. You'd have to take again to account the Jewish calendar. But this would have been July 31st, 593 B.C., and God comes to him on his 30th birthday. Now, this is very significant. Why? Because he's a priest. And when could a priest enter the temple to do the priestly duties? The age of 30. You must be 30 years old. He is, his dad was a priest. His father before him was a priest. His great great grand he was of the priesthood. But you could not enter the temple nor even all the way back to the tabernacle until the age of 30. 
By the way, there's something to be said for men to be seasoned. Amen? A lot of times in the church today, we want to hear from the latest young whippersnapper that seems to know everything at the age of 25. It's hard to believe I'm saying that, but now that was 20 years ago for me. <laughs> so, seems like yesterday. But there's something to be said for being seasoned, but this is a special significance for the tribe of Levi. Priests couldn't enter this service until the age of 30. We know this from Numbers chapter 4, verses 3, 13, 10, and 39. And later on, and by no means coincidental or accidentally, Jesus would enter his ministry at 30. John the Baptist, 30. Same thing. That there's something to be said that God is following that the men that would serve, just like the priest, would be seasoned, they'd be ready to take on this ministry. And here he is at the age of 30. And what's incredibly uh, interesting to me is he probably is totally a little bit bummed out that night or that day that this is the day I would be going into the temple, but I'm hundreds of miles from the temple, and God brings the temple to him. Isn't that cool? I should be going into the temple today. I'm nowhere near the temple. I'll never get to see the temple. And out of the blue, the heavens open for him. It's not apparent that everybody else sees this. For him. Remember Paul saw some things that no one else saw on the road to Damascus? Uh, the heavens open for Ezekiel in the book of Acts in chapter 7. In Acts 7, we see that the, uh, Paul, not Paul, but Acts chapter 7. Let me turn there, read it to you directly. In Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen speaking, and he says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Stephen, again, not Paul, Stephen speaking in Acts chapter 7 there, uh, reminding those around him that, you know, if you worship the temple, big deal. God did authorize the building of the temple, but God does not need a temple because God is is a temple, and he has the temple of the heavenlies, and what house can you possibly build for me, saith the Lord? And so even as Ezekiel is turning 30 and would be entering the temple, the Lord comes to him. Because the glory of the temple is not really the temple. The glory of the temple is the Spirit of God in the temple. Amen? That's what comes to Ezekiel at this time that they're under oppression and we see the heavens open. Verse 4. And he looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. No matter where you are in the world, north is up. And a great cloud with raging fire, engulfing itself, and the brightness was all around it, and radiating it out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. What an overwhelming sight if you're taking notes 
this opening of the heavens. Coming out of the north, he sees as the vision of God becomes clear to him. And we don't know exactly uh, when, when prophets and apostles see some of these things, whether they're in the body, out of the body, uh, how these things work. But nevertheless, what he's seen is real, very real. It's not, not a dream. Uh, he's been transported to see something of the heavenly realm that is absolutely real. But it's overwhelming to see it and trying to describe it. He, he oftentimes will use throughout this first chapter the word likeness um, to tell me, Ezekiel, what did you see? Well, it was like, but I'm not sure how to really describe it. This is what I saw. There's some things he did see clearly, a, a whirlwind. And you know how a whirlwind, it swirls and, uh, and powerful. Coming out of a great cloud. He says it's great. It, it's huge, this cloud. Uh, it's got raging fire engulfing, radiating out of the midst of it. And he sees these four creatures, four living creatures, their appearance, they had the likeness of a man. They had four, uh, each one had four faces, which is not something we've ever seen before, right? These are heavenly, angelic creatures. Their legs were straight, the soles of their feet like the soles of calves. Uh, they sparkled in their color and burnished bronze. They had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And the four uh, had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures, almost as if the four of them touched wings, almost uh, kind of like, again, if you see even the four corners of the altar and they're leaning in that direction. And uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, you saw the wings go forward like that. But here they're touching in all four directions. And he's doing his best to describe it. This is what I saw. Fire, massive clouds, creatures moving at great speed, coming toward. What a sight. In Psalm 68, verse 4, it says, Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah and rejoice before him. And then in the 31st verse, also in chapter 68, ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. His strength is in the clouds. Remember when the children of Israel received the Ten Commandments, God came down on Mount Sinai. It said that He burned the mountain to blackness. He literally burned, and uh, you know, we've shown that video here in search of the real Mount Sinai where it's still jet black to this day at the top, which is incredibly cool to see, uh, which which is in modern Saudi Arabia. But God, when He hovered, now, God can take any form he wants, but one of the forms he takes is a cloud with thunders and lightnings and fire, and he burned the mountain to blackness, and the people were petrified. Remember, when the law was given the Ten Commandments, the people were scared to death because everything was rumbling and the voice of God thundered and all these things that they saw, it was an awesome sight. And God only gave them a tiny glimpse of his power as a warning to not break these commandments that day. That this should have been served as a warning to say, this is not the God to double back and say, I think I'm going to do this anyway, even though you told us not to. Well, he sees the glory of the Lord coming, but he's coming in this powerful uh, vision, and it's very clear that what he's seen 
is a picture of God coming and elements of judgment. Raging fire. These living creatures are coming. Now the glory of the Lord is there as well, but there's also, uh, there is some sternness, if you will, in what he sees in the initial, because God is going to bring him many messages of judgment as we'll go through the book. That God is going to bring these things and uh, the Lord uses his own angels to carry out judgment, doesn't he? Obviously he uses nations, but, uh, but he also will use his own angelic beings to bring forth the message of judgment or the judgment itself. But here uh, he'll be speaking to Ezekiel and really, as we go throughout the book, recognizing that what he saw here very well was a visual representation of the coming cloud of judgment that God will send to Judah. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He's not, Judah will not stain his name forever without God taking some measure of serious corrective action. You saw how many times Jerusalem was given chances. Siege 1, Siege 2, Siege 3. But each time, they wouldn't budge. Sound familiar to a country you know? No matter how many times, a little smidgen of a budge, but not much. Not enough. The, uh, the four creatures, we'll wrap up in just a, a minute here. The four creatures, they're likely cherubim. If you turn your Bible real quick, look at 1 Kings. Turn at uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. What's also interesting about this, 1 Kings chapter 6. I mean, uh, yep, 1 Kings chapter 6. Look at verse 27. This is inside Solomon's temple, which of course, at this point, is still standing, hasn't been destroyed yet. That comes in the third siege. But uh, verse 27, 1 Kings chapter 6, then he set cherubim inside the inner room and stretched out the wings of the cherubim. So the wing of one touched one wall, and the wing of the other cherubim touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Uh, obviously that the Lord had given in the building of Solomon's temples, much of the same understanding of how these wings would, would touch one another. And uh, so cherubim were very prominent inside the decorative on the walls, obviously on the Ark of the Covenant, as I mentioned already. Cherubim were very prominent inside the temple. And as I mentioned, Ezekiel being a priest has never been into certain areas of the temple for service. He's been in the temple like, you know, like, you know, the Israelites could certainly go into the temple uh, structure, the outer court. And, but as far as the priesthood duties, he's not been to some of those areas. And here, the same cherubim, instead of what's done on the wall, he's seeing the real article. These are not what's etched on the wall. These are the cherubim. Four of them. And We'll look more at their, some of their description of them we won't look at uh, tonight, but we'll draw attention to just a couple of things. Uh, their wings touched one another. Uh, they did not turn wherever they went, but they only went forward. Isn't that cool? God, you and I need U-turns. God does not. The dimensions at which he works, he only is a, f 
He's always moving forward. We backslide. He does not. Forward. His angels move forward. He's advancing. Uh, The world that mocks God, they're not pushing him backwards. Amen? He's not going backwards. He's pushing forward. He's always moving forward. The Israelites might have thought they were going to get away with everything they were doing. They will not. Babylon, they're sitting on top of the perch. They're sitting on top of the world. They've got everything under control, but they too will be judged. All the nations, even the future empires that didn't exist, every single one of them, when God moves forward, everyone else goes back. They don't need to turn to the right or to the left. And God really wants us also, as we have his Holy Spirit in it, he wants us not, what did Jesus say? Anyone putting their hand to the plow and looking back, not fit for the kingdom of God. This was the problem with Lot's wife. What did she do? She looked backwards. The Bible talks about backsliding Israel. The Lord wants us to move forward in faith, going forward with the Lord. If the Lord be for you, who can be against you? And his angels show us that God is moving forward. They don't turn to the right. They don't turn to the left. Uh, We can become so easily distracted. This is why Hebrews said to lay aside every weight and hindrance so easily can kind of trip us up or ensnare us that these things must be laid aside. God wants us. Now, he's not telling us that you're going to become like cherubim. But in like manner, he wants us moving forward. And it's neat that Ezekiel, through all that he probably, again, uh, we're just you know surmising what he may be going through after five years of being separated from his homeland. Uh, we know that, like any of the rest of us, those would be tough times. But he's not yet wavered one bit in his loyalty to God, in his serving the Lord, and God has found him faithful. And a good thing for us to know is that God has not forgotten us when we're in difficult times. And just when you least expect it, maybe on your birthday, he'll open some doors and speak directly to you. Amen? I also think it's interesting as we come to close that milestones matter to God. And I just turned uh, 45 over the weekend, and, and I will, I'll take milestones and I'll make new little, they're usually little ones. I, I take off little bite, new commitments of things that I think the Lord has been impressing upon me. But milestones matter to God. You think it's a coincidence he came on his 30th birthday? Absolutely not. He was waiting, first testing his patience, testing his perseverance, and now, because you've been patient, at this next milestone, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. I'm going to show you things, Ezekiel, that I won't show anyone else. Now, other men have been shown other things similar, Isaiah, Daniel, but each one of them had their own unique gifts from God and what will be written here. So this overwhelming experience uh, comes on the heels of really five years of probably some doldrums, probably some uh, oppressive thoughts and heaviness. But uh, he's going to see a lot more of the Lord that we'll look at next week and as we go into uh, the coming weeks, some very difficult messages as well. Let's close in prayer.